My mentors in life were guys like you, a lot of them. You know, I used Don Hare with B.J. Hughes. I'm, I'm an old guy, so none of you probably remember Don, but, but Don, I used to call him uh, B.J. Titan Hare because they merged about three times, you know, B.J. with Titan and then with Hughes, and B.J. Hughes was, B.J. Titan Hughes was the last one I knew. But uh, Don, Don uh, embodies a lot of the characteristics I'm going to talk about today to you guys. And I'm not going to talk a lot about OEPA. I'm going to tell you more about my perspective of a 45, 50-year career on, on what, it, what I've noticed makes people successful in your business. And you can take it or leave it, whatever you want to do, based on my own experience, based on a double track in life. Um, I've, I've been in political fundraising. I've been in uh, government affairs strategy and uh, public, public affairs as a dual-track career. I've got a company called Pivotal uh, Strategic Solutions that I, I'm doing, I do work consulting for different people. Well, one of those people that I worked for for years off and on through the years was Harold Hamm. And Harold and I kind of grew up in the old OIPA together, you know. And uh, so we, we were of like mind a lot. He, he, uh, he was a lot better, a better like mind than I was. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Because we were contemporaries at one time, and now he has no contemporaries. Nobody else owns 78% of a $16 billion company. Now, I don't know what it, it's in. The, it's in the billions. It's over 10, I'm sure. Um, and Harold embodies everything it takes to succeed in our business. You know, now, that's just business. Talk like that, okay? And um, so anyway, um, Harold built Continental Resources to a level that he needed government affairs and regulatory affairs, and he's pretty good himself. He didn't really need anybody because that's what he and I did together for years, and he'd hire me to help him consult and help him open doors and do different things, but he was pretty good himself. And so, man, we were a hell of a team. We did a lot of things together through the years. And so when he got ready to build Continental Resources, he knew he had to have a governmental affairs arm of that to be successful. And so, um, they'll tell you how smart he is. He's pretty smart. And so he hired me to, to do government and regulatory affairs. I've done regulatory affairs, but as an oil and gas producer, I don't much like regulation. I guess that probably is typical of most of us. But with a publicly held corporation on the New York Stock Exchange, you've got, to be, you've got to be sensitive about the need for regulation. And so I got to go through that with him, building that. And then he taught me into going in-house as VP of Government and Regulatory Affairs. I lasted a year. And uh, the best explanation of why I lasted a year is, you know, I quit. Harold didn't fire me, thank goodness. But uh, the best explanation is one he gave to, to a driver in D.C. that I gave him when I... When I started working for Harold, I hired drivers when I went to D.C. He took a cab. You know, that's, I tell you, he's the multi-billionaire. You know, pretty smart. And so um, uh, my driver asked him what happened to Bubba. Everybody knows me as Bubba. And so he said, you know, Bubba just wasn't a corporate kind of guy. And that's the best way to explain it, you know. But I tell you, that year that I worked in-house with him, I learned more about myself. I learned more about business. And I learned more about life than any other year. Because I'd always... You know, I'd always ruddered my own ship, you know. And looking back on that, best job I ever quit. Of course, it's the only one I ever had as an adult. But <clears throat> anyway, the guy that I brought in um, to eventually be my replacement. In fact, when I, when I brought him in, I said, this is the guy to replace me because I'm not going to be long term, you know. And, uh, and he's really good. Blue Halsey. I think Blue is now going to be the new incoming chairman of the uh, Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance. Blue's a fine young guy and really good at what he does. Probably much better than I was for a public corporation, for sure. Because I was always getting into some kind of trouble with the general counsel, 
they got this ugly term called board governance, which means you can't screw up with what you say. You got to be careful. And so I was always going back and forth to his office, you know, and getting him to explain to me why that was not me. Anyway. So I had issues like that that took me a while to kind of get through, and I never got through all of them, put it that way. But wonderful company, wonderful guy, great experience. The first thing I want to tell you, let me tell you a little bit about OEPA, Oklahoma Energy Producers Alliance. 17 Oklahoma OIPA board members left about five years ago and started the OEPA, simply because the OIPA had become dominated with the horizontal drillers and producers, and we weren't able to work compromises on our issues. And the horizontal frack jobs were destroying, come to find out, thousands of our vertical wells. And it, it doesn't happen anywhere but Oklahoma. And you want to know why, I'll tell you afterwards. But uh, anyway, so that's why we got started. And uh, so it wasn't really a harmonious kind of thing. You know, it was not a harmonious split. And so we've been spending the last two years trying to get in sync with the Petroleum Alliance where we can work together. Because, you know, a house divided against itself, the scripture says, doesn't stand. And Abe Lincoln gets credit for it, but that's from the scriptures. And we are a house divided against itself uh, at current in Oklahoma. And so you can't pass any kind of legislation for the good of anybody without both groups being in favor. So those compromises that we were unable to, unable to make at OIPA are going to be made. They just have to be made now that we've got enough strength as an association. We've got 530 members in about 40 communities all over Oklahoma. The difference in us is we're generational producers. We're more, more conventional producers. But we've got members that are probably, we're probably drilling as many wells now as they are. And um, we got Mac Energy was one of our founding board members. Uh, Ellie Jones, Lance Jones is our vice chairman. Uh, Dewey F. Bartlett is our chairman. Um, we've got at least three members that are putting in active water floods right now, which are drilling. Mac is going to drill a lot of wells this year. Um, Ellie Jones does that. Um, S&J, uh, Stevens and Johnson out of Wichita Falls, Texas, is also in the water flood business. Citation is one of the bigger oil companies in Oklahoma, mainly, mainly conventional. They're a member of ours. So we try to represent a segment of the industry, but we don't, we, we don't want to fight with anybody. You know, we want to be one harmonious industry again, but that's going to require compromise. Because none of us, they can't pass legislation that we don't agree with, and we can't pass legislation that they don't agree with. So to do anything in the government regulatory affairs arena, we really need to get together. And we're trying to do that. And this last session, we worked on, on a couple of bills. Uh, one bill the Continental did that we, we wholeheartedly agreed with and helped with that. So yeah, that's where we are. As, enough of that stuff. You guys don't care about our industry squabbles. But I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about, uh, if you want to know more, I'll tell you more. But uh, we'd, we'd love to have you members of ours. Um, go to okenergyproducers.org. That's our website. You can see all of everything, all the blogs that mainly I've written through the years. And uh, you can see the fights. You can see everything by going to that website. You can see what we're doing now, which we're in, we're in more of a, um, 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 a collaborative mode. where We're trying to collaborate with others in the industry. And, um, and, and I think having some success. And our leadership now, I'm out of the leadership. I'm not, I was the president for about four years. I was the chairman first. And... As president, I ran the daily affairs of it, but that's unique. Most people weren't in our business, aren't ready to run associations. And um, they're out making money while I'm doing that. And, um, but anyway, um, it's great leadership, good guys, solid people, generational producers. The good news about us, we may not drill but 10% of the wells in Oklahoma, but we don't go away. We don't, we don't merge. We don't go away. We're still here. My son is fourth generation, and he's got 300 wells in southern Oklahoma. And uh, my brother has got his son, so he's fourth generation. We got Cantrell's have five different oil companies in eight Oklahoma. Very independent. You know, we don't any of us interface. You know, anyway, that's who we are. You know, we're in every community. 
in, in Oklahoma. We're, my son's the, the uh, president of his Rotary Club in Ada. You know, Dewey Bartlett's been mayor of Tulsa. And so we're, the difference maybe in us is that we're Oklahomans first, and, and uh, we put the interests of our state um, on par with our own interests. We don't ever ask for our, from our state anything for us that's not in the best interest of our state. That's, that's our number one mantra. We don't want to ever hurt. Um, in fact, we probably the reason teachers got paid more because we supported a, an initiative petition to raise the, the, the rate of, from 2% to 5% on new wells drilled. And, uh, you know, only tax increase in my life I ever supported. And uh, um, it, was, it was crippling us at the time. And it got three-fourths vote of the legislature to get it done. And we supported every single compromise. And uh, that, that was a tough fight that um, left a lot of people with ill feelings. And I, I regret that. To me, it was never personal. You know, it was a, that's who we are. You know, we care about having teachers. We were losing thousands of teachers every year to other states because we didn't pay them anything. And so we're getting better. We're getting better at that. And so that's kind of enough of that about who we are. But one thing I want to say today is that we're in the greatest industry in the world. And we still are. And we're going to be, I believe, as long as any of us in this room are alive. This 2030 stuff, this 2050 stuff, it ain't going to happen. It's just unrealistic. I call it an unrealistic wish fantasy. The green energy deal, hey, we need to embrace the idea of alternatives and the idea of going green because the public believes it. You know, they believe it to the extent over 70% of the public agree that we need to get, they believe in climate change. They believe, it doesn't matter whether we think it's true or not, the public does. You might have just seen the Wall Street Journal this morning, ExxonMobil had two board members elected from a renegade environmental group onto their board. Shell, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, has also been told by the government of wherever they're from. Netherlands. Yeah, Netherlands. Yeah, that they're going to have to go green by 2035 or something like that. And good luck. Good luck, guys. There, there aren't enough rare earth metals to make that many electric cars. And, I mean, you can you know, do your own research on it, you know, and there's not a lot of objectivity on climate change, in my view, because it snowballs to where everybody agrees with it. Well, a fact of public affairs is that if the majority of the public believe something, you're better off to get in sync with it than you are to fight it. Because you can't win. If they don't believe you have a right to exist as fossil fuel producers, you got a problem. So we got problems. You know, the larger companies, horizontal drilling has been a game changer, and I think it still will be. But the, but the larger producers that do, the, do that work are having trouble getting funding. Um, they're $80 billion in the hole to their investors. And finally, the investment community said enough. Enough of that. You know, we're not going to invest money. Add on to that, you've got the largest banks in the world now that will not, will not fund bonds. That's a new story, too. They're dropping the bond funding for fossil fuels. So the raising of capital to do the work we all need them to do is going to be harder. But I believe in America. I believe in the oil and gas industry is totally linked to the culture and the economic mindset of the United States of America. We will not only survive, we will, we will thrive. Because what's, what's won two world wars for America? Oil. What else has done it? Technology. We geared up for World War II. We had the fourth or fifth largest armed forces in the world when it started. We geared up and we were, we were turned a Ford factory into making tanks. We geared up and we, our supply of, of materials won World War II. No question. Without us, it doesn't happen. That's because our technology. Henry Ford, you know, think about it. Go all the way back to Rockefeller, whatever you want to do. You know, go back. Um, we've led the world in technology, and our industry has been a forerunner of that. There's a book called The Big Rich that is really entertaining reading. It's about the four big rich Texans, H.L. Hunt, Clint Murchison, 
and I think Sid Richardson, and I can't remember the fourth, he's from Houston. But Sid, I believe it was Sid Richardson that uh, drilled a, a field out in West Texas for oil. Back then there was no market for natural gas. And so he got gas. Well, most of us, when we got gas, we said, oh, hell, we've got to plug it, you know? Sid Richardson said, yeah, there's a community over here about five miles away. I can lay a gas line to that community, and I can sell to those individual customers, and I can build customers using natural gas because it's a whole lot better than firewood or, or whatever else they've got. And so he did that. And, I mean, that's the kind of innovation that we've always had and we still have. Right now, right now that, those investors have, have left the industry pretty much. They'll be back. They'll be back for one reason. It's going to be profitable. Um, mention a little bit, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, people that are you know, down in the mouth and petroleum associations are the worst. It's saying, oh, we're all going to hell. You know, we're all going to, you remember that Merle Haggard song, are the good times really over for good? You know, but the last verse of that song, it's depressing till you get to the last verse. And the last verse is, let's make a Ford and a Chevy still last 10 years like they should. The free life, let's see, is here to stay. The good times ain't over for good. And that's true. Our technology, we will do it better. We will lower our drilling cost. Most of you in this room are probably already having your companies or finding ways to save or make us money. That's what it's all about. Got to be profitable. And we will survive. And we'll not only survive, I believe we'll thrive. Because I believe the Green, the Green New Deal sounds great. I'm all for, I'm all for some, you know, you know, my grandchildren's grandchildren are going to have to have alternative fuels. And, and, and I could be wrong. They could do it quicker with enough debt financing. But we've already spent $6 trillion in debt. How much more are we going to spend getting a green economy and still survive the inflation? Anyway, enough of that. I want to talk about you guys and what you do and uh, give you my sense of experience on, on how maybe to give you some ideas. I doubt it. I doubt I could give you any ideas you hadn't already got. But I, I learned a lot through my career about service work. Um, one of my early mentors was Harvey Cornelison in Seminole, Oklahoma. Harvey uh, was a master mechanic. I learned how to work on engines from Harvey. And so I learned from Don Hare. I learned from, and Don never was um, uh, spiteful of my relationship with Halliburton because there was a guy named Gene Summers that was a great oil field cementer. And, uh, and Gene was going to do all my cementing. You know, he just was. And so, um, but the principles that, that I've kind of learned that I think are principles, and I won't, get them, I won't get them in any right order. I had 10 of them written down, but, uh, you know, my memory's not that good. I can't remember what I wrote down 10 minutes ago. But, you know, one of the principles, and would probably be most on everybody's list, is integrity. Don't make promises you can't keep. You know, be conservative. You know, under-promise and over-deliver. You know, that's integrity. Have integrity with your customers, with your customers. Another principle would be, and I've, I've written a book called Advance, How to Take Your Life, Your Brand, and Your Business to the Next Level. Well, there's a chapter in that book that says, Make Your Career Your Fortune. And so a lot of what I'm going to say next is, about, is out of that chapter. And one of my best friends in life is Bill Caffey. Bill was a COO for Coke Industries in Wichita, Kansas and for 20 years. And so they made major acquisitions, and Bill has a wealth of knowledge. And he helped me with that chapter because my, my knowledge of how to make money working for somebody else is not real good. But I bet Bill got out with $50 million doing that. You know? And uh, so it, you can do that. You don't have to be an entrepreneur to make money. And so, you know... Um, uh, in that, in the idea of make your career your fortune, you know, I would say I've got that. The name of that chapter is called uh, relational networking. Don't just network. This is networking. You know, you probably already all know this, but when I was six, 16 years old, I go in to buy my first set of tires, Manasco Tire and Supply. Ed Manasco was my 
uncle's father-in-law. So I walk in to buy my first set of tires. I've been going in since I could walk with my dad. And Ed said, come on in, boy. I'm going to give you a grandpa deal. And I said, Ed, I don't want that. I don't want any special treatment. I want you to treat me just like anybody else. And he smiled and he said, son, let me give you your first lesson in business. You don't make money off your enemies. You make money off your friends. Don't worry about old Uncle Ed. He's going to do just fine. And I never forgot that. And I think that's applicable. That we don't, we don't prosper by going to networking events and handing out business cards. That helps. We do that. I've asked for several cards today. But we prosper by building relationships. True friendships. Make your customer your friend. And Don Hare was my friend. Gene Summers was my friend. Lester Luton was my friend. Harvey Cornelius was my friend. And in that same vein, I will segue to loyalty. How important loyalty is. Integrity is first. Loyalty would have to be second in my view. Be loyal to your customers. Do the best for them you can. Don't try to skin them. And forever, don't ever lie to them. Don't ever try to take advantage. Be honest. One time when you're generously loyal, when you can say, you know, I'll tell you the honest truth, the right guy to do that is so-and-so. They will never forget that. And you'll have loyalty, a loyal friend and customer for a long time. And that's my perception. So, you know, loyalty is, is very, very important. Um, you do business with your friends. You're loyal to your friends. You have integrity. Huh. Don't get caught up in the world of the sky is falling. Because it's not. I've been doing this for 40 years, government regulatory affairs. I can't tell you how many times I thought the sky was falling. It never fell. Joe Biden, President Biden, is not the end of this industry. Just like Barack Obama wasn't the end of this. We did better under Barack Obama than we did Donald Trump. You know, all the things he wanted to do to us, he didn't get done. You can use one example, methane regulation. He wanted to end methane regulation. He wanted to have methane regulation for everybody, where we couldn't emit any natural gas. Well, you can't. You could. It just wouldn't be cost effective. Biden has said he's going to do the same thing. Obama didn't do it in eight years. I'm going to predict today that Joe Biden doesn't, end meth doesn't imp imp impose methane regulation on the entire industry. Now, he might impose it on some, but he isn't going to impose it on the entire industry. It isn't going to run us out of business in eight years. If he gets eight years, which he can't live eight years probably, but if he gets eight years, he ain't going to hurt us. What's the price of, West, of WTI today? 65, 66? What was the best we had under Donald Trump? 40. I mean, Donald Trump did some good things for us. Don't get me wrong. I mean, in, a, in many ways, I, I, I never cared for the character of the man. But I will tell you that the things he did as president needed to be done, a lot of them. And I, think he's, I don't think he's gone by any means. But I will tell you, the president of the United States doesn't have nearly the impact on our livelihoods as we might think. Almost irrelevant. Almost, this economy of ours is the largest economy in the world. Number two is China. And right now, they're still half the size of our economy. Now, they're growing. They're growing. They'll get to it. They'll, they'll, they'll probably catch us at some point. But right now, they're learning. They're doing it. Learning at all. Learning. They're, they're, you know, they've got a, a, a free enterprise model built into a communist system that seems to be working for them to me. But, you know, the United States of America is not going to go away. We've still got the advantage in every way you can think of. And technology uh, will, will propel us to where we need to be. And I see a lot of young guys in here, and I, I appreciate that in our industry because you guys are the future. You guys are the, probably the now. You know, you're going to take us through these challenges of technology and cost that we've got to address in our industry. And uh, uh, hand me my tablet right there. I've got a couple of things on there that I need to say that, I, that uh, at my age I've just kind of forgotten. 
The methane rule, if, if they started today trying to do it, it would take 10 years to get through the process of hearings and lawsuits and everything that has to happen for that to really impact our lives. So in your business, don't worry about it. If you're in this oil field service business, you just need to keep up with what's going on and participate with whatever group that's working politically. Don't worry about it. Do not let it stop your opportunity. It's hard to pass legislation. It's easy to kill things, hard to pass it, you know. Did you guys know that any United States senator, any one of a hundred United States senators, can hold a bill where it doesn't come out until they've addressed his concerns? That's powerful. You don't have to have a two-thirds majority. You don't even have to have a majority, really. You've got a senator willing to hold a bill, which Inhofe has. I think Langford would, too. Um, generosity. I think generosity is an important concept. Give of your time generously to your customers. Make friends of your customers. Give of your time and your services generously. The advice you give away is going to give you, make you more of a return than keeping it for yourself. You know, the free advice may be free. It ain't free. I mean, it's free for you to give it. It's free, but it's smart to be generous. There's only two kinds of people in the world, in your world, friends and potential friends. I've already mentioned the value of friendship and being loyal to your friends. Here's one I learned at Continental. Um, respect the chain of command. The absolute kiss of death would be for somebody to try to get the work from the Northern District of Continental, a guy named Brad Amen ran it, still does, I think, petroleum engineer. If you went to Harold Hamm and said, you know, I need you to get such and such some business because they're important to us in government affairs, dead on arrival. I promise you, Harold will mention it, and then Brad will say, like hell, we're going to hire them. I don't know if you guys have run into that or not, but never violate the chain of command. I used to, I learned, I learned this very early in my career. I just forgot it a lot. But when I was an oil field pumper, you know, the gaugers come by and buy your oil. And if it's got too much water content in it, they'll turn it down. Well, I had a gauger that was stealing two inches on the top and two inches on the bottom. And so I called in on him. Rather than work with him on it, I called in to the supervisor on it. So the next time he came out to work a tank, the only, only, the only, the only remedy they gave me was to be there and watch him. And they were the only people who'd pick up my oil, by the way. And so I was there watching him, and he turned it down. It took me about three tanks to figure out how he turned it down. He was licking his thumb and taking the centrifuge, which was half oil and half gasoline, and then running the centrifuge. Well, the, the liquid from your thumb was enough to turn that oil down. And I said, I said, Mr. Fowler, I will never do that again. I want to make amends. Tell me what we got to do. You know, I'll never call in again. I'll always work with you. And we fixed it, but it was tough for a while. So never. I will tell you, I can't think of a single reason to ever violate the chain of command. Now, if you have to work with the CEO directly, if that's what you have to do, find out who the gatekeeper is. Every one of them's got them. When I was at Continental, it was Katie O'Brien. If you couldn't get through Katie O'Brien, you couldn't get to Harold. And so, very good principle I've learned, I learned through my time there and my early experiences, is respect the chain of command. Work with the people you're supposed to work with. Don't try to go over anybody's head. It, it'll not help you to do that at all. Um, the importance of humility. Always be early if you've got an appointment. Always be early. And give of your time generously. But guard his time or her time with everything you've got. Do not impose on their time. And that's part of generosity. It's a one-way street. You're humble. You're generous. You let them go in as long as they want, but you don't do that. 
do your homework uh, before you go in to see somebody. Know who you're talking to. There's no such thing as a successful cold call. Now, all of y'all are in business. All of y'all have done this more than me. I'm just doing it from a perspective of, of, a, of an employer and someone that worked in a, in a company. No such thing as a cold call. Very seldom are they effective. You need warm calls. You know, if you're going to go in to see somebody, do a Google search. It's so easy to find out. The first thing I did at Continental Resources was we had a meeting with the governor. And Harold calls me up. It's my first day. And he said, you want to go? And I said, absolutely. And uh, so on my way to Enid, which they were in Enid at the time, I Google searched John Hoban, Governor John Hoban. Found out everything about him. He was a banker. I found out his political persuasions. He's a moderate Republican. He's not a right-wing guy. And so I was able to tailor the presentation because neither one of them knew him at the time. Jeff Hume, uh, y'all may know Jeff. Jeff Hume uh, has known Harold Hamm since he was a teenager. Been with him, will be with him to the end, even if, he, if Harold makes him sweep floors. When, when, Harold, when Jeff got fired as the president and they brought somebody else in, Jeff Hume was the one that explained it to all of us on why it was the right thing to do. That's loyalty. That's that loyalty I'm talking about. And uh, so anyway, we're on the plane, and if you've ever heard either one of them present, Jeff is a very articulate, you know, a very persuasive, uh, excellent presenter. Harold, a little more difficult to understand sometimes, you know, and he's just himself, and that's good enough. So I listened to their 45-minute presentation that Harold was going to give. And I said, Harold, all due respect, you got the best communicator in the industry right there. He knows everything you just said. Cut the presentation down to 20 minutes. Let him give the presentation. And when it's over, you say the one thing that still needs to be said. You say the one thing. Whatever that is, Harold, that's your job. You're the intuitive. Most intuitive man I've ever met is Harold Hamm. Most frugal man I've ever met is Harold Hamm. If you ever read my book, he's in every single chapter as a, as a model. Um, so we did that. Jeff Hume gives the presentation. We meet the governor. And Jeff Hume gives the 10 or 15 minute presentation. And then uh, and Harold says, Governor, he said the one thing you need to say. Governor, when I took Continental public, our stock was supposed to come out at $16 a share and it came out at 14 And when I asked the analyst why that was, they said, well, you got bad weather up there. You got the highest tax rate in the country. And you've got inadequate access to end markets. And he said, Governor, it's going to take a long time to get better access to markets, more pipelines. There's not a thing we can do about the weather, but we can do something about that high tax rate. And we're asking you to help us get our tax rate down where we can be competitive, you know, because we had a high differential, uh, had bad weather. We needed a little bit better tax rate. And it was, uh, the tax rate in North Dakota was 11.5% severance tax, highest in the lower 48. And so eventually, I wasn't there long enough to get it done, but Blue was. Eventually, they got that tax rate down to, I believe, 9.5 or 10, which is a win, you know, because North Dakotans, they're an agricultural economy. They still don't think energy is number one. Agriculture is number one. And if I had my way, I would always say agriculture is number one because you're just butting your head against the wall trying to say we're the biggest and the best and all that. That doesn't work. But, um, but you know, that was an important, do your homework. And that's my example of doing my homework that paid off. And, um, um, you know, find commonality with people. Find the common interests. Find common friendships. If the guy went to Texas A&M, you probably got a friend that went to Texas A&M. If the guy went to Oklahoma State, you probably got a friend that did that. Probably about the same time. You know, bring that up. Bring that up. Third-party validation. You're validating yourself by knowing somebody like Jeff Hume. You know, he went to Oklahoma State. You know, I know Jeff Hume. You know, oh, you know Jeff Hume. Well, that gives you credibility. Make sure the guy you're referring to has got integrity and 
and all the great qualities you want in a person because it could, it could screw you up too. Um, here's the last thing I'll leave you with. Um, oh, no, two other things I need to cover. Persistence. Persistence. That may be number three on the list right after loyalty. You know, be persistent. Um, I found that in, in my career anyway, it took me four times on average to get someone to do what I wanted them to do. Especially if I didn't know them. You know, I had to get to know them. It took me four times calls to get to yes. So that's my average, average of four. So unless you've called on somebody in your, in your world, it's probably a lot more than four times. But be persistent. Be generous with their time. Don't, don't be angry. Don't ever be angry. In your world, anger, whom the gods would destroy, they first anger. That ought to be your mantra. You know, ever get angry or disagree with people. Um, and, but persistence will pay. There was a man, in, when I was working in the oil fields, there was a man that had a lisp. Talked talk real funny, talked real funny with a lisp. And everybody made fun of him. You know, all the people in, he'd, we'd go in, the rest of us would go in to eat cafe in Francis, Oklahoma at lunch. And he'd come in and ask every one of us if we had any, you, you got any oil properties that want to sell? Who got any oil? And everybody, no, 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 you know, laugh. But this one guy he zeroed in on and uh, wouldn't let him off the mat. He finally went in and came back after he hit him for the tenth time on selling me your oil properties. He said, would Steve, would you tell your wife to sell me her oil, your oil properties when you die? <laughs> That's persistence. Now, I don't know if he ever bought those oil properties, but he bought a lot of them by being persistent. So Bill Jack Hamilton is not someone anybody would ever know, but he's in my book, my chapter on persistence. Um, of course, follow-up. You guys know the importance of that. You know, no doesn't mean no in your world. It just means maybe. You know, unless you get hell no, you keep coming, and you keep trying to find creative ways to keep coming. It's not their failure, and I learned this at Continental, you know, in my work there, was that every time, every single time, I got at cross-purposes with somebody in the company, on the corporate staff, other VPs, the answer was the same. I just need to get better. Has nothing to do with them. It's not their fault. I just need to explain it better. I need to have more to work with when I come talk to them. I need to be able to tell them why it's in their interest to do what it is I want to do. And, you know, I have a lot better success once you can get in sync with people. You get in sync with people. You don't, you agree with your adversaries. You get in sync with them some way. And I think that's, that's an important part of, um, of loyalty, persistence, follow-up. And the, the last thing I want to say is um, this is a hard concept for any of us to, to agree with. And I'm going to tell you this. Nothing bad happens. The universe is unfolding as it should. Nothing bad happens. I've had three major surgeries in three months. I've had MRSA in my shoulder beginning in December, which is a killer, and had to deal with that. Got through that. I had MRSA in my spine. Had to have back surgery. I've been on intravenous antibiotics. Still am. Still got the tube right here. For the last, since December, intravenous antibiotics. I have to give it to myself three times a day. And, you know, I remember laying in rehab after the first surgery. And I'm thinking, God, if this is it, take me home. I've had a great life. Seventy years is plenty. I've had a lot of fun. Done a lot of things I'm proud of. Got a great family. Just take me. I'm done, you know. And so then I, I learned somewhere in that process of depression and despair and negativity, I learned to be optimistic and positive. And I don't think you ever get well from a major illness without being positive. Your negative attitude will put you in the grave. I really believe that. There is a, there is a direct correlation between those. 
And so then I began to start thinking about what good has come out of this. Well, 2020 has been a bad year in the business. The worst year I've ever had in the oil business. I didn't have any money to spend anyway, so it's kind of a good deal that I was at home, not spending money, okay? My wife and I are 50 years next week. You know how you do in a long marriage. You kind of go your way, she goes hers, you know, and mainly it was me going mine. And, uh, you know, our relationship is better than it's been since we were in our 30s or maybe 20s for being together all that time. We kind of figured out why we've stayed together all these years. She's taking good care of me. I love her and appreciate her more than I ever have. I'm so grateful for the experience. You know, when I got through counting all the things to be grateful for in my life, I thank God for the pain and suffering. It's worth it. It's worth it to have all the changes that I've seen in my inner self with my wife, with my friends. I value my friends. I've had friends come to see me. You know, it's just been a, a wonderful experience being near death. Kind of weird. But I would tell you, don't lose your optimism. That's the best thing you've got going. The world is in the universe. Your lives, your businesses are unfolding as it should. If you can take that mindset with you, then, then you've, got, um, you've got an edge up on everybody else. You know, if you can have that mindset that it's all working in a Christian viewpoint would be according to God's purpose, would be the language. Um, but the Tao, the Ching, says the same thing. Buddhism says the same thing. Uh, Judaism has the same passages and give thanks in all things. If we can give thanks in all things to something greater than ourselves, then we'll find out our lives are going to be much, much better. With that, I'll take any questions anybody might have or thoughts. What's the name of the book? The book is called Advance. You can buy it on Kindle or on Amazon. Advance. Advance. How to take your business, your brand, and your life to the highest level. And now the publisher came up with that. I would have picked a different title, but the publisher had a different idea on that. But, you know, every chapter, I've got a chapter in their own parenting. Because the best thing I've done is raise Summerlin and Blake Cantrell. You know, they've been very successful themselves. They're good. They're caring, compassionate adults with their own kids and own families and own businesses. Very successful. So I've got a chapter on parenting that I really have to give credit to my wife mainly for that because she did most of that. But it's important stuff. So, yeah, anybody wants to read that? Uh, or you're welcome to get a hold of me. Uh, I'm easy to find. You can Google search me, Mike Cantrell Data, and you can find a website and any way to get a hold of me. I'll give you my cell phone number. It's easy. It's 405. 206 4444. I can send you a book, copy, autograph it for you. So, yeah. Is that good enough? Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Was your first welding drill at 21 a success? Yes. Yeah. And, it, it, and I still remember the smell of walking up on that tank battery the first time that my oil is flowing into my tanks. And it was a 1,450 foot Gilcrease well in Pontotoc County, Oklahoma, six miles east, northeast of Ada, the Cooper number one. It came. It was an offset. I just offset production. It was already there, and it came in at five barrels a day, and uh, at about 60 barrels of water. And I had a way to handle water, and so it it's, it got me started. Good Lord, I don't remember. Probably probably four dollars, three to four dollars a barrel, and I made money at that. And uh, most of my career, I've made more money acquiring other properties and improving them than I have in drilling. But I've I don't think you stay in our business. And I've told my son this repeatedly unless you once in a while drill. Because the bit is how you find that once, you might drill 10 wells that aren't great, but that one you drill that comes in, I had one, it was the Brico number three, it came in 80 barrels a day, 1,450 feet deep, same field. And you know, that one field propels your business. Harold Ham's success, his first, he, he was uh, driving a tank truck, a 35 barrel bobtail, most of you may know this, and his, he, he raised enough money 
to drill two wells. And he had, he'd gone over logs. He'd gotten oil men to explain to him how to read logs. and Kind of like my dad did. And Harold didn't have a generational ability. You know, he was, he was first. Thir son of 13 sharecroppers. Uh, 13th son of sharecroppers. And so he drilled his first well. It was a dry hole. But because he raised enough money to drill the second well, it came in at 60 barrels an hour. It was an untapped reservoir that people had just overlooked and up by in Garfield County somewhere. And that, I will tell you, there's a lot of reasons Harold Ham's Harold Ham, but having that kind of a start, he didn't go buy airplanes and yachts and stuff like that with it either. He hired geologists and geophysicists and engineers. He staffed up with people that knew what they were doing. And, uh, and that's how he built the company, in my opinion. That's how he did it. He's, he's intuitive. He's a hell of a geologist, self-taught on his own. But that's how he did it. So. Any other questions? Is there room, do you think, to uh, start your own oil company? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's always a way. There's always something overlooked. There's always rocks that haven't been explored or opened. Uh, the technology, these guys are hunting for elephants. They're just doing it, hunting for elephants in places that wouldn't make oil, wouldn't make money conventionally. But they're, they're, some of these things are sweet spots. I'd say the Wall Street Journal did a survey of the top horizontal drilling companies, shell companies, and uh, only 10% of them were profitable. And so, you know, I think the, the bottom line is that the Permium is still the granddaddy. It's still the place where you need to be. The uh, North Dakota, Bakken Shale, has got some reserves in the sweet spots that are really good, still pay off in three months. Even a six, eight million dollar well pay off in three months. Now it's about 60, 70 dollars a barrel. But it's still, you know, I, I don't like that model. I like our business model better, and that's just because it's got better staying power. We're not gonna, we're not gonna run through private equity funding, which you get for a five-year payout, or you're gone. They, they replace you with somebody else. You know, you're not gonna drill horizontal wells in that, in that model uh, unless you're really, really fortunate and, um, and get some sweet spots. Then you're, the model is to sell out in five years and make multiples on your money. And that, that, that works for a lot of people. It, uh, it's not our way of doing it. Uh, our way of doing it is we're just conservative. Uh, that five-barrel well was one of the best wells I ever had, really. My son's average well, well is two barrels a day, and he makes money. No debt, never missed a payment, never missed a, 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 a distribution to the partners, ever, and uh, through all this downturn. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I think there's opportunity all through our business. If you can come up with the right technology to save people money, you got something. You got something. And that's what I would think would be really strong in your area. I've talked to some of you guys that are kind of on cutting edge stuff. I think that's really important. Automation is going to be more and more important in our, in our business, I think. But ways to just cut cost. You know, look for ways to think about your customer instead of yourself. You know, be of service to your customers. And uh, put them first. Be generous to them first. And then all other things will fall into place. Any others? Did you ever have any statistics on percentage of orphan wells that would come back and be producers? Of orphan wells. I'd say, I'd say that's unlimited. And the reason I say that is I don't know how many orphan wells we've got in Oklahoma. We got more than that. That's very conservative, I think. But um, I helped pass legislation 28 years ago that says basically the statute is the commission cannot. They had a rule, but they wouldn't enforce it. They were trying to plug wells to keep the plug-in industry going or something. And so the, the statute we passed, and it's still on the books, you cannot plug a well on an otherwise producing lease unless it's causing an environmental or public safety problem. So the commission cannot make you go on lease, the Brico lease that's got six wells that are not producing, that are temporarily abandoned, and one well producing. They can't make you plug those six unless it's causing a problem. 
Those are assets. I believe orphan wells should be looked at as assets, not just liabilities. Now, let me finish that with an addendum. Congress has got a bipartisan bill that would spend $10 billion zeroing in on eight states, and I'm working on a consulting agreement to help with that. Uh, I haven't nailed it down yet, but we're working on it. Um, that would fund $10 billion to eight states to plug orphan wells. Well, that'll be a good thing, but we've got to get the control of that by state. Oklahoma's definitely at the top of the list. We'll be in that eight states if we don't disqualify ourselves some way. So we're going to have the plugging industry in Oklahoma, I think. Uh, now my son and I have a well servicing company, and he's going to get into plugging because we think plugging is going to be a big thing. I don't like plugging wells. I hate plugging wells because there's so many of these orphan wells that you can find another zone, like Harold did. You'll find another zone that needs to be open. That isn't good enough for, for um, 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 go out of Exxon Mobil or, or, you know, not good enough for them. But for us, oh yeah, we'll make money with that well. we'll It'll pay off. 15,000 barrels of total production. You know, guys, that, the big companies in the big buildings here, they'd laugh at that. Hey, show me that. If you got a deal that'll produce 15,000 barrels a day and I can get it relatively cheaply and it's conventional, I want to look at it. See what I'm saying? So there's unlimited opportunity, I think, in our business and in the service sector as well. Does that environmental rule apply that you have to have at least one well producing a lease? Yes. Lease? Yes. Okay. Not only just to hold the lease, right. but to hold that statute in place. Okay. And, you know, and, and of course, it, the case law is all over the books on how long they've got to be abandoned. You know, I mean, some judge in Enid, I mean, in uh, Kingfisher County has, has made a guy plug a five barrel a day well saying it's not commercial. He should have taken that to the Supreme Court. That wouldn't have, that wouldn't have stood up because all of our oil and gas leases say we have to produce in commercial paying quantities. So if that guy's paying his bills and still making a little money, he's got the right to hold that lease. And I believe the Supreme Court will say so if we ever get the right case up there. So we've got a lot of top leasing going on right now in Oklahoma where they come into your lease and say, try to say it's not really producing enough to hold anything, so we want to cancel it. Well, guess what? The oil royalty owners like that idea because they got one-eighth royalty on those leases. And they can get a 3 to a quarter on a horizontal well going through there. So I can see why it's in their best interest to try to get you to plug it. That's not the contract they executed when they signed an oil and gas lease. So we'll eventually win that one. One of the questions on a horizontal well that robbed the vertical well's production, is there, there is a statute of limitations on... Two years. On vertical well, two five. Yeah, two years. There, now, remember. I've seen one law firm say, and that's one of the things we did, was get law firms interested in pursuing those things, those cases, because you know, any of you that have ever, lawsuits are a bad thing. They're not a good thing. You know, you, you go sue Continental Resources, you're crazy. You're going to lose. Let me tell you why you're going to lose, because Harold doesn't quit. Doesn't quit. He will paper you with depositions and with continuances till you give up. You can't afford your own legal fees. I'm just, I'm not saying that as a bad thing, because he's not by himself. You know, Newfield, in, in Devon, any of them. They got deep pockets, and so you're at a real disadvantage in lawsuits, but it's the only option you've got when they've destroyed your well. Is there any recourse other than a lawsuit? No. Not, Oklahoma is the only state that has what we call forced pooling. So they can come in and take your reserves with a horizontal well that you're holding in Seminole County or wherever that you're holding with production and drill right through the middle of it and frack the crap out of it, and there's not a thing you can do about it. I watched one in Blackwell where Chesapeake went underneath the producer that provided the water for them to drill the well, they they fracked it, his free well went dry. Yeah. But then the lawyers tied it up for two years, yeah. the statute kicked in, yeah. and he's sitting there with yeah. dry hose. Yeah. The best, the best option is to do your best, and we've had one of our board members, the head of our legal committee, is Marianne McGee. I can't think of her oil company name, but she operates in that area, and, and uh, she was very successful in suing. And uh, she eventually got in arbitration and kicked their butt in arbitration. 
And, but she's also a lawyer, so there were no legal fees, you know, and that's the big advantage she had. So the best thing we can do, if, if anybody finds themselves in that position, try to settle. Try to settle. To Harold, I will say, try to settle. Settle with the company. And one of the things I'll say to Harold's credit, while I was still there, he'd already found the scoop play. He, you know, he found that. He had two young geologists under 20, under 30, that found that. And they called it something's neck after one of the geologists. But anyway, um, uh, Harold immediately tried to buy the small producers in the area out. Now, that's the right way to do it. You know, that's the right. And I don't, you know, I said as running this organization, I get all the calls of the guys that have lost their wells. I mean, it's just, it's hard to sleep at night when you know people are losing their, their livelihoods. But I will tell you that Continental has been one of the least bad actors anyway as far as doing that. And I think they would, they would try to make a deal with you. Um, and I think they... Uh, I think they would. I don't know that anymore. I'm not close to them anymore. But um, I know Harold did try to buy. I've seen vertical wells also. In 78, I was working for Texas Oil and Gas in Oakwood. Right. The well was making 440 barrels a day. Yeah. Offset wells to the north ground. They went dry. Yeah. And I, I never did hear what the final ruling was or what, yeah. how they settled up. But it literally ruined that well. Yeah. But the law of capture doesn't work in our favor. We're a law of capture state. So you don't really own the oil until you get it to the top of the ground. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a misnomer I had. Many of us have that we own it. We don't really own it until we get it on top. Now, in that case, you would sue for other things. You know, you'd try to get around the law of capture. And some of these suits have. We've had successful lawsuits against companies that have fracked in and ruined our wells. And um, through federal judges. You want to get it, um, you probably want to get it in federal court because it's a little harder to play games in federal court. That's, that's counterintuitive to what you would think. But the ones I know of that have been successful, get them in federal court, and they ended up they end up settling them. They don't want to they don't want to have a judgment against them, you know, that can be used in other, and they seal them, so you don't really know how many there are. They don't know the judge. Yeah, that's right. So I'm not saying I'm just saying it's better to know the judge than it is the law. Put it that way. You know, you know what I'm not saying. I'm just saying it's better to know the judge than it is the law. You know, they want to come to Pontotoc County, Oklahoma, and ruin one of my wells. They got a problem. They got a problem. They're not going to win that lawsuit, in my opinion. You know. A judge is my buddy. I mean, they're not going to, you know, probably try to get him to recuse, but uh, he won't. So, uh, anyway, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough, difficult question to answer totally. And um, uh, Marianne McGee is a good source if you've got a problem with that to talk to. I don't. Do you know? 70s or 80s? It may have been the 70s because he was early. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to talk. Next question. Yeah, next question. Yeah. Yeah. I did speak with him though in Wichita for the Texas Lions. Yeah. I had an uncle that was real good buddy for Don't get me telling Harold Ham stories. You know, when I was at Continental, you know, he and I were the same. We fought regulators, we fought regulation. We fought bad legislation our whole careers, even when we were just working together as peers at OIPA. And so we had a, a, a deal come up in North Dakota where um, I, the Dakota, North Dakota Petroleum Association head called me and said, Bubba, I don't know what's happening up here, but there's something big happening because they got helicopters going all over the state. And um, we don't know what's happening with EPA or U.S. Fish or whatever it was, but it's coming. So we knew it was coming. But the day it happened, we got filed on by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife for violating the Migratory Bird Treaty, which, you know, we, I don't know if any of you know, we, we've netted our tanks and pits forever because of those dead birds. You know, you get a sparrow in your tank, it's a migratory bird. You know, I mean, you're done. I mean, it's, it's a $5,000 fine and can be a jail term, can be a criminal act. It's ridiculous. 
So I'm at the board meeting at the board table in, in Enid at the time. And uh, so I'm telling them about this law, about this, this suit. We got six dead birds. They found a Continentals. And, um, you know, here's what our liability. They're hitting us with $50,000 a bird. And they're, um, and they're threatening five years in jail for the CEO, Harold. And so I'm telling them all. And they said, well, how are we going to Hume or somebody said, well, how do we, how do we resolve it? And I said, oh, it, it's easy. I mean, you know, we just, we just pay a $5,000 fine, you know, at the worst per occurrence. And it goes away. And Harold Ham's clear at the other end of the table, and he pounds his fist on the table, and he said, this is the United States of America. They can't do that to me. Like hell, we're paying that fine. We're not paying for one dead bird. So we, we, filed, we started working on a lawsuit. And my part was to find out the lay of the land up there. So we found out that we're better off with a federal judge in North Dakota. And don't ask me how I know that. Just better off with a federal judge. And the lieutenant governor was a good friend of mine. And he had worked with this federal judge. Let's just say that, leave it at that. This federal judge, when he ruled on that, he said, not only is Continental not guilty, but you have misapplied the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. It doesn't apply to oil and gas operations at all. And so by being, being like Harold, being Harold, there's not another Harold Ham, being like Harold and taking them on for principle, when it wasn't in his financial interest, the risk was much worse than, the, than, the, than, the, than what we got out of it. But... He set precedent for the whole country. Now, they may have changed it. I don't know if they've uh, amended it to include us or something. But you've got a federal judge ruling that's the law. Unless somebody overturns it in another court or there's additional law, forget that in your pits and tanks. You know, and if you do get a, they'll still try to say, they'll still try to find you. They'll still do it. But you've got law on your side now. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Magnificent guy, magnificent story. Don't ever sue him. And if you get in a dispute with him, work it out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember Tom McCaslin Jr. and I are good friends at Mac Energy. He was second generation. Tommy the third is third generation. And, uh, uh, did you? I remember Ike real well. Ike was in the Reading and Bates building in uh, Tulsa. Yeah, he yeah. had one little office wall, all the way up high as this, had a desk, plus size of this, and newspapers spread all over the floor, and spit in the middle. Yeah. And I walk in there, and he's boots on the desk, and he's spitting that spit over there, having a second yeah. job, and keeping his papers picked up. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you one thing about Ike Pierce. I was a young man when I met him, and um, there would not have been, there would not be an independent patrolling station at all in Oklahoma if it hadn't been for Ike Pierce. He was one of the original founders of OIPA that split off from Mid-Continent. Same reason we split off, you know, I mean, they weren't being represented. And Ike funded it for as long as it took to get it off the ground. Did you know that? Ike Pierce was, the, I would call him the granddaddy of, of independence in Oklahoma. Yeah, good guy. Well, that's, uh, I won't take any more of your time. I've, I've had fun doing this and I appreciate the opportunity.